Open your Bibles to John chapter 5 this morning. John chapter 5. We're going to look with the Lord's help this morning at verses 24 through 30. Verses 24 through 30 provide us an opportunity, as I mentioned in the first hour, as it relates to our own Christian life. So it is true, too, of our response to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is this, that there is no neutrality. There's no neutrality in our response to Jesus. And in these verses this morning, we have the reason why that is true. We read this, Jesus, again, making that familiar declaration of truth twice, and this passage says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Whatever else you may think of Jesus, however else you may have thought of a response to Jesus, however you may have observed others responding to the person of Jesus Christ, one thing is clear. There's no neutrality. You're either for Jesus or you're against Jesus. You either believe His words or you reject them. You either love Jesus Or you hate Jesus. You either submit to Jesus. Or you rebel against Jesus. You cannot be neutral. Every one of us here this morning. Is confronted with that. Lack of neutrality. We have. No choice. We must respond one way or the other. And in verses 24 through 30 that we've already read this morning, Jesus draws that line of neutrality. He forces us to the fork in the road to take one direction or the other by means of two types of promises. There are two promises that are given here in this text. There is a promise that causes the believer to rest because he believes. And then there is a promise that causes the unbeliever, or at least should cause the unbeliever, to fear because they do not believe. 
Again, no neutrality. Both of these promises are applied to us depending on our response to him. And I want to ask you as we begin this morning a very simple question. And this question will determine the direction of your response and then which of the two promises you will receive. And that question to you this morning is simply this. Will you hear and will you obey the words of Jesus? I want you to look in the text with me this morning at verse 24. We read Jesus saying this, Truly, truly, I say to you, Now, it might sound to you like there are two different people being addressed here, but in reality, there is one. It is one and the same. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him. There are not those who hear the word of Jesus as it is used here and don't believe, nor are are there those who believe and yet have not heard. Jesus says that, that I'm addressing the same one. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Both to hear the word of God and to believe in him who sent Jesus not only describe the same person, but tell us something about God himself as well that will be unpackaged as we move throughout the rest of this text. And I want you to notice three promises this morning, beginning with a promise of His power. There's a promise of power for those who hear the Word of God and believe that Word. Notice what Jesus says, He who hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. When we speak of hearing here, Jesus is not referring merely to an acoustic sense. To the tympanic membrane vibrating and the little bones in your ear causing vibrations that you you hear words, you, you hear facts. But to hear Jesus in this sense is to obey Him. That's always the scriptural idea, the biblical idea of hearing God is Not only to hear, but to obey, to follow what you hear. In fact, James warns us, don't be hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. You actually incur judgment upon yourself when all you do is hear without obedience, hear without application, hear without following Christ. And so is the way that Jesus uses that concept here. It is not just a listening, but a listening and a responding appropriately that ensures the promise of His power in your life. The call is always to hear, to embrace, to believe, to obey, to enjoy. Why is Jesus so keen on calling us to not only hear, but believe Uh, Some might even say Jesus here is being a bit legalistic. You mean I have to do something? I have to hear and then follow that with with a course of action? And And the answer is yes. 
Because you don't want to miss what is associated with the words. And that is His power. In the next chapter, Jesus will make this statement. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Why must you hear the word of God in the way that God intends it to be heard this morning? Because without it, you have no life. There is no hope for you to shun the words of Jesus either by hearing them audibly, by reading them in his word, and by giving heed to those, which always drives us to the second point, and that is to believe him. To hear Him and to really hear Jesus is to believe Him. The two things cannot be separated. In fact, go over to Romans chapter 1. You'll instantly make the connection, I think, because you're a bright group. In Romans chapter 1, in verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, What does the gospel consist of? Words. There's a silly notion that goes around that says something like this. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. The gospel is words. It is truth. And notice what that truth does. It is the power of God for salvation. Now just think about the power of God for a moment. It created everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we see. It has decreed everything in history that has ever come to pass. That is power, dear friend. And Jesus commands us not out of a legalistic spirit. To, you need to hear and then you need to believe. You need to hear and obey the words that you hear because You know, I'm just here to control your life. No, he does so because he understands this, that apart from a true hearing of his word, there is no power of life. His words are spirit. His words are life. They are the power of God that leads to salvation. So Jesus says, listen. Listen in such a way that you follow in faith That you follow obediently the command to believe. There's something else implied that we'll get to in a moment here, but notice the end of verse 24. The one who believes, him who sent me, that believes the Father and the Son, has eternal life and does not come into what? Judgment. Very simple, you don't believe that's where you're going. You are not only going, but you currently are under judgment. Believers, maybe that's where we need to improve in our evangelism is that we warn people of this far off theoretical, conceptual place that, I mean, God's judgment so far out there, yeah, I'll deal with that later. But the reality of what Jesus is saying here is that judgment is now. Judgment is now that they have passed out of darkness into life, out of judgment, out of death, 
into life. When? Way out in the future, no now. He who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Eternal life is now. Now is part of eternity. You realize that, right? Eternity started somewhere in the past and it goes far out into the future. And this little parentheses, this little dash in time, in eternity is still part of eternity. We have life now. And to ignore that is to experience then judgment. Jesus says, I've demonstrated this promise of power that saves already. I came from my Father. I'm one with my Father. You have seen me do the works that only the Father can do. That's why you're so angry. (laughs) And now hearing and obeying is what is the need of the moment, the need of the hour, that you would acknowledge these realities and embrace them in such a way that you are reconciled with your Maker and your God and your Judge. The Word of Jesus creates faith in Him who sent Him. That is the Father. And so in a very real way, when we come to God for salvation, we come to the entire Godhead for salvation, not just Jesus. Ephesians 1 demonstrates it. God the Father plans it. God the Son executes it. God the Son's, or God the Spirit applies it. The entire Godhead is involved in our salvation. And so our trust, brothers and sisters, is not only in Jesus, it is in the Father as well. It is in the Spirit. We we believe Him who sent Jesus, whose words Jesus speaks and that testifies of Him. There's nothing about the Son and the Father here in Jesus' ministry and Jesus' words that would tell us that they're different in such a way that we should believe one and not the other. No, they're one in the same. And Jesus says, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me, hears the promise, has eternal life. You have it. You have it presently. It's not something we are waiting for. It's now. And you have moved from death to life, according to the end of this verse. You have moved from judgment to blessing. Now, I want you to notice something. Again, in this verse, it may sound like these are one event, but they're not. They're actually two. Look at verse 24. You have passed from death to life. You've come out of a state of death in which you currently existed, and you've moved into now a place of life. And that's going to be repeated and expounded upon again in verse 28. Look down at verse 28. Do not marvel at this. Because you have already passed from death to life, there's coming a moment when the tombs will open and all those in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Do you know why 
we are going to walk out of those tombs? Do you know why we'll come out of our graves? Because we're still alive. Because our life has already begun now in believing in Jesus. It is now. And we will continue to live eternally in that state of blessed life that comes from Jesus. I think so many times when we lose a loved one, when we face the reality of death, we, we really feel like because of our limited finiteness that you know, they died. No, they don't. As believers, we continue to live the life which has begun in us already. And coming out of the tombs later on is just proof that Jesus has granted that life. What a glorious thought for all of us who have lost ones that we love and hold so dear. They're not dead. They're more alive than they've ever been if they are in Christ. They are rejoicing in ways that we could only hope to rejoice. And someday that grave will be opened and their body will come forth but it won't be as if it's just now beginning to live because Jesus says in verse 24, you have already started eternal life. You have already passed out of death and into life, life that has no end. The promise of His power. The promise of His power. Because the converse side of that, the flip side of that coin is also true. We are presently dead. Human nature tends to think it's currently alive and someday will die. The reality is we're currently dead, but we'll live forever. It's upside down. What do you mean by that? Because we tend to think of death as something that happens when the physical heart stops beating. The reality is there's a much greater death, and that is the spiritual death into which we are all born. We are, very literally, in the sight of God, dead men walking. And Christ, and Christ alone, and His power has come to reverse that when we hear His words and believe in Him who sent Him. Our great need, brothers and sisters, is not death and a resurrection after that in the future. Our greatest need is a resurrection now. A resurrection to life, not bodily, but spiritually. That is the great need of our life now and always will be. From the time we are conceived, this is our great need. We need now to experience the resurrection, life-giving power of Jesus. Now, when I come to the hospital, visit you and your little babies, for those of you who have had and will have, I get to see them. So you know what's going on in my mind. I look at those precious little babies and I think, they look so full of life and yet they are so dead, spiritually speaking. I remember holding my own children thinking, how can that be? And those little coos and the smiles and the 
sweetness of that baby, but to realize spiritually they are dead. And their greatest need is for Christ to raise them from the dead. And Jesus says, that's what happens when you hear my word, believe him who sent me, you are raised now and deal with your greatest problem now. A spiritual resurrection followed someday, verse 28, by a bodily resurrection. Once you go down to verse 25, because Jesus highlights this, he again uses that formulaic statement, truly, 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 truth of very truth, I say to you, an hour is coming and, and now is. It's, it's present, it's in time, it's not out there. And notice what he says, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. What dead is he talking about? Every single human being ever born. We're all dead. D-O-A. Dead on arrival. The hour is now, brothers and sisters. You must hear the words of Jesus now because you are dead right now apart from Christ. This is not something that will occur for you in the future at which time you can deal with it. You need it now for you are currently dead. And when Jesus invaded time and space and His own creation, He came and He brought the very voice of the Son of God so that the dead could be raised to life. The very promise of His power is here. And Jesus is bringing, and to this very day, He being dead and risen again still speaks here. He is still bringing people to life through His words. Preach the Gospel at all times, and if necessary, you use words. Use words! Because that's how the dead are raised. That's how hearts are made alive minds are made to understand by the very word of god they're leaving the very realm of judgment in verse 25 where they currently stand condemned flip back a couple of pages to chapter 3 would you please to verse 18 of chapter 3 jesus says something similar he who believes in him is not judged He who does not believe is judged already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It goes right along with it, doesn't it? Verse 25. He's already dead. Why is he dead? Because he has not believed the words of Jesus. He's not heard the words of Jesus. He's not believed him. The dead are not those in the grave, but those who are on their feet with no life in them whatsoever. That's every single one of us. Jesus says that hour is coming and it is now, by the way. Jesus is bringing to life all who will hear his voice. There's no question about it. They're leaving the realm of judgment where they stood condemned. 
And they're passing over into life. I want you to notice something that Jesus so kindly does for us. And it doesn't come across quite as clearly as it might were we to be alive in Jesus' day and hear Jesus speaking as Jesus spoke. But when Jesus says they pass from death to life, that there is now no judgment, the word is constructed in such a way, it's a very strange construction of the word, but it means not now and not ever. They face no judgment right now in their moment of need, and they face no judgment in the future. It's a permanent removal from one state to the other that they would be saved from their sins, raised to life, never again to face that judgment. They have passed both now and forever. They will never face judgment again we're reminded aren't we of the apostle paul's words in romans chapter 8 verse 1 there is therefore now when now no condemnation to those who are in christ jesus brothers and sisters no condemnation not now How many of you have ever lived with the weight of someone's disapproval? You remember as a child, maybe your mom said to you something like this. My mom did. A lot. Not because she was mean, but because she was kind and she loved me and I deserved it. We're going to need to wait till your dad gets home. Those are the longest days in the history of mankind. And you feel as though you're living with the weight, don't you, of that disapproval, of that guilt, of that problem? And, you know, those days would have been better. Mom, find the skinniest belt, the most limber switch you can, and just get it over with. This is terrible. And so for Jesus to come and to say and Paul to remind us that there is now no condemnation. It's not like we're waiting to get to heaven or get to the judgment and and get it resolved and we'll see how it turns out then. No, brothers and sisters, live like there's no condemnation now because there's not. There is no condemnation ever to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to kill and to steal and to destroy, but I came that they may have life and life more abundantly. Now. This isn't prosperity gospel. This is free from sin gospel. It's absolutely debilitating to live with the weight of sin, isn't it? And if you don't see that, if you don't feel that, if you don't sense that, you don't know the weight of your sin. You don't know the problem of your sin. You don't understand the holiness of God. To live with the weight of sin, the fear that it causes, the doubt that it causes, the discouragement the anxiety 
Jesus says the time is now. God rejoices to give His children the freedom, the relief from the burden of sin and the load that that entails. He's like the prodigal son's father in Luke 15. He comes running to remove the load of guilt. This past week, we were watching one night with Julianne the animated story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Can you imagine the weight that that young man carried all the way home? Not knowing how his father would receive him. Not knowing how he would be treated. But how instantaneous that response of the father is. It says when he saw his son afar off, he ran. He ran. Something you didn't do as a nobleman. Especially to a son who it is good as said, I wish you were dead. Give me what's mine now. And he runs to meet his son. The burden is off. The father doesn't say to the son, well, in five years we'll see how things work out. He calls back to the house before they even get home. Bring out a robe. Kill the fatted calf. Prepare a feast, a celebration. My son who is dead is now alive. It's what Christ has done for us. It's a now salvation, a now resurrection to a now problem and a now sin and a now death. How does He do this? How can this be? Look back at verse 21. Because the Son chose to give us life. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so so the Son also gives life to whom He chooses. The Son chose to give you life. He chose you to impart the gift of life to How can it be? Because the Son did this. How can it be? Because there is power in His Word. Verse 25. How can this be? Because the Spirit of God has rebirthed us from John chapter 3 in the conversation where we learned of this with Nicodemus. Because in so doing, verse 24, because God has so worked, we have heard and we have believed. There's the promise of His power that He will do that. How does He do that? That's answered by the following verses because of who He is. There's the promise of His power, but secondly, there is the promise of His person. There's the promise of His person, and we find no shortage of divine titles here in this short passage. We have the Son of God. We have the Son of Man. Because of who Jesus is, He can do what He does. Remember, this passage shows us two things. It shows us ourselves and it also shows us our Father, our God. 
Look at what the text says in verse 26. Just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus as God is no different than God. Everything he touches upon is life. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 4. He is life. In him is life. And that life becomes the light of men. When Jesus speaks, when God speaks, the world is created. When Jesus calls the dead, they live. Why? Because out of Jesus comes life. Jesus is life. Everything about Him is alive. And He's dependent upon no one. We we read that to some degree in the confession this morning. That He is completely independent. He derives His life from nothing and no one and no situation. He is life. We need to get back as the church today and recapture classical theism that understands the nature of God. God is independent. We act like God is dependent. We make the mistake of Psalm 50. We made the mistake of thinking He was like us. And He's not. He's completely outside, independent from, not needing us. The converse is true. D.A. Carson says, we, however, are derived creatures. We have to find our life and our being in someone and something else. The truth of the matter is, ultimately, it's God. Secondly, it's our parents. There's no life for us outside of that. To think that human Life can be created in a lab like they're talking about nowadays by some AI and this and that and the other is just straight up foolishness. They are not God. We are not God. We never will be and He will not tolerate rivals. God is different than us. He is, has life in Himself. How does Jesus do it? Because He is life and He has life to give and everything that He does breathes out life. Jesus has life in himself because the Father has given it to him. Now, I want to just take a moment and clarify something that might be confusing to you, but I hope will not be after I say this. When we read the word, such as in John chapter 3, verse 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, We read the word begotten and our minds are trained to think culturally so because of the meaning of the word in our culture. Begotten has to do with somebody generating something, creating something. That's not true. Jesus Christ is never created, yet he is begotten. The word begotten does not have as much to do with the idea of generation in Scripture as it does like kind. The Son is the like kind of the Father. He is the exact representation of His nature, Hebrews 1.3. He is who the Father is in essence. He is just like Him. 
He is begotten in that way, not that He is created. He is not created. He is eternally existent, finding His essence with the Father, like the Father. And this is who has come. That's why He has life in Himself, because He is begotten of, like kind as His own Father. Jesus, therefore, is life in Himself, because He is like the Father in all that He is. This wields a great power, doesn't it? That then because of that life that is within Him finding its way into the words that He speaks then creates life. When Jesus speaks and He speaks life into a dead soul, that soul will live again. Jesus does not stand outside the deadness of our hearts to those who belong to Him, to those who have been given to Him by the Father, to those whom He has chosen to give life. He does not, and you cannot find in Scripture anywhere this to be the case, that He stands at the the tomb and the grave of dead men and say, well, would you like to come out? Because guess what dead men would say? No, we're good. We'll just stay here a while. We like the rot. We like our sin. No, when Jesus stands at the tomb to call the dead to life, the dead begin to live again and they come forth. Ask Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth! What did Lazarus do? Came forth. Notice that Jesus speaks in definitive language throughout the entirety of this passage how many times the word will is used. There's no option A, option B. They will do what the Son calls forth. They will respond according to the life that is in the Son. Every one of us who believe the words of Jesus, who believe him who sent Jesus are here and give that testimony this morning because there was a time when Jesus said, you will come forth. You will live. Why can Jesus give this power of promise? Because of the promise of his person. This is who he is. But notice verse 27. He not only has life in himself, but he's also been given authority to execute judgment. So wait a minute, time out. I thought Jesus said he didn't come to judge the world, but to redeem the world. Oh, he didn't come for ultimate judgment, but he still issues judgment. He has been handed the key of judgment. It has not yet fully been exercised yet, but it will be. And it will be executed not on a, on a basis that is fallible. A basis that shows preference. A basis that shows favoritism. It will be based on His Word. To those who accepted and heard his word and believed, 
He passes them out of death and into life, out of judgment, into fellowship with his father. But to those who do not hear his words, who reject him and what he has said, on that basis he will judge them. He will execute the authority that has been given to him by the Father upon those who have rejected him. Jesus has both the ability, the authority, and the right to exercise that judgment. A judgment that ends not in belief, a judgment upon the actions of men that led them not to believe but to reject. The words of life have been heard. They have been wholesale rejected. And now judgment incurs. You know that was true in the Garden of Eden. We say, wait a minute. Jesus is a God of love. He wouldn't do that. Jesus is God and that's where you need to stop that. Because what does God do when His word is spurned and rejected? Go back to Genesis 3 and find out. The Word of God came. The Word of God was clear. The Word of God was true. The Word of God was righteous. And what did Adam and Eve do with that Word? They absolutely rejected it out of hand. Didn't they? And what incurs? Judgment. It's no different. The second Adam, Jesus, according to Romans 5, has come to bring life and redemption that we might be reconciled back to the way things should have been in the garden. And those who hear and reject Him will likewise face such judgment. Jesus himself is referred to as the Word in John 1, in the prologue to this book. And so to reject the Word is not only to reject what He speaks, but to reject who He is. And any judgment that follows is absolutely 100% righteous. And you say, wow, this was so encouraging. We were talking about Jesus giving life and Jesus, you know, giving the assurance of life coming through Jesus. And now you're talking about all this judgment and death. Where did you go off the rails, Brian? I'm not off the rails. I'm still on the rails. And even in judgment, there is life. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Now I'm really confused. What do you mean by that? Because Jesus Christ in vanquishing and in judging that sin which rejects him is in actuality promoting life. It's like apprehending and placing as far away as possible the guy who masterminds, the guy who finances, the guy who specializes in the destructive weapons manufacturing, the guy who carries the suicide bomb to enact some terrible terrorist attack it's like taking him and putting him as far away as we possibly can down some dark hole and welding the lid on and you say judgment well deserved because that guy's gone now many will live yeah that's what jesus does with sin That's what Jesus does with anyone who would lead in the rebellion of sin. To judge them and to remove them. That's not cruel. That actually is a protection of life. To judge those 
who choose death and sin and rebellion instead. He's not unjust. When God sent the children of Israel into the promised land, in the Old Testament, he says, you see all these tribes? Yeah, kill them all. Why? Because they were death cults. That's why. They murdered their own children. They murdered one another. And there had to be an end to the shedding of that kind of blood. And so God in justice says, end those who will end it all if you don't. Israel didn't, did they? And they found out the hard way how destructive not dealing with sin through just judgment can be. And so Jesus is not unjust to say that he has exercise of authority upon those who don't believe. He can execute that, and he must, because he has noticed, lastly, the end of verse 27, he is the Son of Man. So wait a minute, why did we start with the Son of God and go to the Son of Man? Because Son of God is a term often used to reflect Jesus' saving purpose. Son of Man is used to reflect, at times, his sovereign dominion for the purpose of judging. Say, where would you find that? Well, way back when. Throughout the scriptures, actually, but one place in particular, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel says this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, which that is Old Testament speak for judgment. With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That doesn't happen apart from the judgment of rebellion. You show me any kingdom on earth that does not judge sin and rebellion, and I will show you a society that is not long for this world, including our own. We're seeing the fruit of that. If you are unwilling to judge righteously, you will pay a price. But that will never happen in God's kingdom because to Him... Because he is God, he has been given as the son of man, the dominion, the headship, the kingship that subdues all rebellion. There's literally nothing that Jesus does that can be questioned or reversed. His is a pure, righteous, life-giving word and judgment. We move now to verses 28 through 30. We might doubt and wrestle. Maybe you're doubting and wrestling with what I say. Just as these Jewish leaders are doing as Jesus is speaking to them in his own day. But that won't always be the case, brothers and sisters. There's coming a day when there will be no more wrestling. All will be made clear and plain. Because there is lastly the promise of his future work. He says this, do not marvel at this. 
Don't marvel at this because if you think that is problematic, wait until you see what comes later. Don't marvel at this, for there is an hour coming. Now notice how that is different than what he said in verse 25. That hour is coming now is. This hour is just coming. He doesn't say this one is now. There is an hour coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Now, what all do you suppose we're referring to here? All, all. Remember what we've said before that the New Testament uses three different kinds of all. There's all of some kinds. Some of all kinds. Or all of all kinds. This is the all of all kinds. Everyone is coming forth from the tombs. And they will hear his voice. And again there are two realities. The subcurrent to this passage almost seems to be a duality. There's two of everything opposing each other. Those who believe and those who don't. Salvation and judgment. Life and death. And now we have two types of people, which is to say all people are going to come forth in a resurrection. And notice what happens. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you saying Jesus preached salvation by works? That is not what I'm saying at all. Nor was Jesus. Because the good deed that Jesus speaks of here is not a work, but it is the obedience to believe what Jesus taught. To believe who he was. The good deeds is the believing that leads to life. The evil deeds are those rejections of unbelief that leads to judgment. Man, we do our lost friends, neighbors, loved ones no favors when we look at the resurrection as something only for believers. That is to communicate to them, you die, and that's kind of the end of the story. No, no, no. My friend, you die. You suffer torment now, but there is worse torment coming when you are resurrected and face judgment. Final judgment. You may be in the local county jail now. Wait until you're sent to your final destination. Upon your resurrection and upon the judgment of your unbelief that is characterized as evil here. You will be judged. There's no neutrality. You're either one or the other. You'll either be resurrected to life because of belief or you will be resurrected to judgment because of unbelief. Unbelief being that capital sin that there is no forgiveness for. Every other sin is is forgiven, right? But the sin of unbelief and rejection, there's no forgiveness for that. Because to be forgiven for that, if you say, well, I'm going to be forgiven for that, yeah, because you believe now. But ultimately, at the end, in the final analysis, there is no 
salvation for unbelief, that's the very thing that will lead to your judgment. Again, as I said in Sunday school, we're hardwired for law, as Michael Horton said. We want to check box. Well, I need to know what can I do that is going to send me to that judgment and what can I not do? What can I get away with? No, that's not the point. The point is not, well, I'll go to hell for these sins. No, the point is you will go to hell and face judgment eternally because you didn't believe fundamentally. All those other sins come as a part of that. But it is unbelief that ultimately sends us to that rejection. Any form of rejecting God is evil. Doubting Him. Rejecting Him. It's an affront to who He is. Our emotions may get stirred up and find logical reasons for us to justify doing this, but God doesn't go by our emotions. He's untouched by our response to anything. We may say, well, but it was a lack of information that caused the problem and we can try to justify it based on that. But God has provided everything that we need to know. It all boils down to this. It is a rejection of Him so that we come to verse 30 in conclusion. Jesus says, I can do nothing of my own initiative. In other words, he's asserting, I'm not just a man trying to do things because I think it's a great sounding scheme and plan and story. No, as I hear, I judge. He is reasserting his deity. Everything that I hear, I judge on the basis of this. And everything that I hear, I tell you. He says, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because why? I don't seek my own will. Rather, I seek the will of Him who sent me as begotten of the Father, one with the Father, like the Father. I do and say all. Isn't that how we started this? Everything that the Son hears, He speaks. And based on this, I judge. And it isn't me. It is God saying it. I'm not a fringe movement. I'm not an offshoot of the true God. I am God. And based on that, I will judge or grant life accordingly. Jesus is, does, and judges on the perfect will of God of which He is part. You know this intuitively. You tell your children very explicit directions as to how to clean their room at night. Little Susie, little Johnny, pick this up, put that away, do this, do that. What are you going to judge them on the basis of when you come back in that room? What you told them. You're an employee in a company. Your boss hands you a job description. And he says 12 months from now, 
We're going to have a job review, a performance review, and we're going to look at this together. How are you going to be judged? On the things that he thought about? No, on the things that he gave you on the sheet. If he's a just and good boss, and we'll assume he is, you're going to be judged on the things that he spoke his words to you. This is what you're supposed to do. So it is with Jesus. Infinitely of more weight than a parent teaching their child or an employer giving a performance review. We are judged by the words he has spoken because they are from God. He is God. Whatever else you may think about Jesus, you must think this. There is no neutrality. You either believe Him as He's revealed Himself or you reject Him. One of the two. There's no customizable version. There's no my view, your view. There is His view as revealed in Scripture. May God give all of us the grace and the mercy to hear Him and believe. Let's pray. Father, Cause us to hear and to believe Your words as spoken by Your Son as demonstrated in Him. Cause us. Cause us to believe. We're so dead in our sins and trespasses and apart from You working in us, there's no hope for us to even respond appropriately. So cause us to hear and to believe that we might live. Father, if there's one here this morning who has never placed themselves in that place of submission to the words of Jesus, they've loved their sin, they've held on to their sin, they've rejected surrendering to Him, obeying the Word to believe in Him and in Him alone, Give them eyes to see and ears to hear that they are still under judgment. They are walking dead men. Under judgment. But that can all be reversed if they will bow the knee to you. And to call upon the name of Jesus Christ as God. And claim His work on their behalf to pay for sin. And believe that He died for them in their place and rose again for them. Cause them to believe that today. Cause us to see You for the exalted God and Savior that You are. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.